Good afternoon, Rob Port, 970 WDYM, 93.1 FM. Here to guide you through your lunch hour and beyond. Getting into the Jay Thomas show, which I know you're anxiously awaiting. But for now, you got me, and I think we got some fun stuff to talk about. Uh, coming up at 1 o'clock, a tax reform is, uh, it's, it, they're going to be voting on it today. Uh, and, and Senator John McCain, who was sort of looked at, well, his his vote scuttled Republican efforts to reform Obamacare, but this time around, it sounds like he's going to vote for tax reform and also vote for eliminating the individual mandate. Uh, so anyway, we'll talk with Pete Sepp. He is the president of the National Taxpayers Union uh, about what's going on, all the latest. There was actually an interesting letter to the editor of the forum uh, from Murray Sagsby, and he used to be a uh, an attorney for the North Carolina University system, uh, but he basically writes uh, talking about how tax reform uh, making its way through Congress uh, could eliminate prohibitions on tax-exempt nonprofit organizations, uh, including faith-based organizations, things like churches, um, which basically prohibited them from directly, directly or indirectly participating in uh, any political campaign on behalf of or in opposition to any candidate. Uh, what do you think about that? That's sort of an interesting aspect of tax reform that not a lot of people are talking about. Uh, we can talk about that today on the program. Uh, Pete Sepp also coming up at 1 o'clock. We'll do the rundown at 1.30. Uh, Natio, how the heck are you? Doing great today. Yeah, I mean, having a good day? Well, yeah, it's, it's been a pretty good day around here at least. Uh, not so great for people like Matt Lauer and Al Franken, but... yeah, I, Another accuser coming forward for Al Franken, as we heard in the news at the top of the hour. Um, this time it's a, it's a veteran. Uh, who says that he cupped her breast during a UFO, a USO tour, excuse me, uh, back in 2003. Uh, I'm reading this. This is from uh, Don Davis, uh, published in the Jamestown Sun. Uh, Stephanie Kemplin, uh, she's 41 today, uh, told CNN about a USO tour photo opportunity in Kuwait in which she said the Minnesota Democrat reached around her and touched her breast. Uh, she is the fifth woman to accuse franken of sexual misconduct uh four of them women saying that they were groped during photo ops uh two of those women on the record and of course the initial accuser leanne tweeden obviously on the record as well two of the photo groper women or women accusing senator franken of, of groping them during photos uh are not releasing their names publicly uh, this is further from uh don davis's article uh he he uh she She's quoted as telling CNN, uh, when he put his arm around me, he groped my right breast. He kept his hand all the way over on my breast. I remember clenching up and how you just feel yourself flushed. And I remember thinking, is he going to move his hand? Was it an accident? Was he going to move his hand? He never moved his hand. Uh, and apparently this went on for like five seconds, which, you know, I think we've all had that incident like when you're in a crowd or you're, you know, uh, whatever, or maybe you accidentally touch somebody in a more intimate way than you intended, right? I think we've all had that happen, right? Well, like yeah, especially especially if you're in a crowded place. I mean, like if you're all smashed together on a bus or something, bus goes over a bump and you jolt forward a little bit, right. you accidentally brush up against somebody. Accidents happen. Yeah, you're accidents, not looking, you turn, whatever, you know, stuff like that happens. And, and accidents last a second or less. Right. Like like it happens, you immediately pull your hand away, you're embarrassed, you're mortified, uh, and life goes on. Like it's happened to me, it's happened to a lot of people. Um, it doesn't last for five seconds. And it doesn't happen like you put your arm around somebody for a photo, your hand goes to a place maybe you didn't intend. You don't then leave it there for five seconds. And, and even at that point... There's a time limit on that. Like, even if it was accidental in the beginning, once you leave it there past a certain amount of time, it's not an accident anymore. Right? So, I don't know. Here's another one. Meanwhile, uh, House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi calling on John Conyers to resign. John Conyers in the hospital uh, blaming all the media coverage and, and the scandal surrounding the allegations that that he you know was a was a groper or a creep in Congress. Remember, we had uh, not just that he settled sexual harassment lawsuits. He's had members of his staff come out and and tell details about all sorts of incidents. Female reporters apparently who who cover the Capitol saying they didn't like to ride in the elevator alone with him. Um, Nancy Pelosi calling on him to resign. Um, 
Meanwhile, others, uh, Representative Jim Clyburn, a Democrat, you know, saying that that we shouldn't believe the accusers because they're all white. What a mess this all is. And this is just Congress. We can talk about Matt Lauer, too, I guess. Some of the stuff that's coming out about Matt Lauer are, are just... Disgusting, deplorable, unbelievable. The thing about his office that could, like, automatically lock, that was from the Variety article. Um, that he could automatically lock his office. Yeah, well, and I've like I've, I've seen buttons like that before. I mean, some offices that have like a secure entrance have I guess, little yeah. buttons like that, but those are like main entrances to portions of the building, not entrances into someone's specific office. That I, part creeps me out. I, I posted on Facebook, and the reaction for some people was that they have seen this before, like in university settings where you're trying to protect. Um, you know, obviously, like if you're doing experimentation or you're trying to protect intellectual property or, or places where there's secure information. And certainly, you know, I, I guess the journalists would fall into that category where you'd want to have some security. I don't know. Maybe he's working with sources and he doesn't want people walking in when he's on the phone or whatever. OK, I, I guess that makes sense. And maybe other people. at M- I mean, I apparently as, as I'm reading more into this, he apparently wasn't the only person at NBC News to have this sort of a feature on his office. So I don't think it's like something he just personally had installed for himself, right? But the way he used it, he's basically summoning women to his office and then locking them in with him while he pressured them for sexual activity. I It's just, I don't know. I, we keep, this keeps coming up and I'm just, I, I don't know what to say about the behavior at this point. I mean, it's just one after another after another and, um, Russell Simmons today coming out, a woman uh, who was the, and I'm forgetting her name now, darn it, I had the article here in front of me, Uh, but a woman, she's apparently the daughter of a director that Simmons worked with, um, wrote an op-ed basically talking about, you know, in very graphic detail about how he raped her. And now Russell Simmons is stepping away, obviously uh, a a media, music, you know, mogul, uh, stepping away from his businesses. So... You just wonder. I mean, every day, it's new names, new people. When is it going to end? I think the problem, the problem for me is that once the genie's out of the bottle, it, it never goes back in. I mean, we, we talked about Garrison Keeler a little bit yesterday, but the stuff that's coming out now about the Garrison Keeler incident makes it sound like maybe Garrison Keeler wasn't so much in the wrong and that this maybe was an overreaction. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. But when that's, reading but some that's of the stuff never, about him. Yeah, but that's never going to, that genie's never going back in the bottle. Yeah. It, you know, this reminds me, there was another incident, and, and I think it's, I think it bears caution. I think it was back in, I want to say the 80s, maybe the 90s. There was a flood of like sexual abuse cases involving children. Uh, and it was all circling around what were, what were called at the time, I think recovered memories, I believe was the situation and what was happening is you had children who were going into like therapists or psychologists i i can't remember what and and they were they were talking about you know they were being put under hypnosis or whatever and, and all of a sudden they were remembering things about abuse involving their parents or involving teachers or whatever and there was this whole it, it obviously wasn't to the degree that we have today with all these sexual harassment involving celebrities and politicians and everything. But it was, I mean, it was a big hysteria back then. And come to find out later, there were some false accusations there. There were a lot of false accusations there. And so I, again, yeah, I mean, it's tough because if you've been falsely accused of something like that, the stigma never goes away. I've actually worked on the defense team for a man who was falsely accused of rape and he was exonerated, but yet has had to live with the fact that, the accusations against him made headlines and are Google. If you Google his name to this day, those come up first results. And you have to click around a little bit to find out the fact that he was exonerated. So, yeah, when these accusations never go away and there are points to be made about trying this stuff in the media. But on the other hand, you'd also don't want to get in, in way of what I think is a very real cathartic moment where very real past problems uh, are, are coming to light. Let's uh, get to a caller, and then we'll take a break. Caller, Kay, you're up. Hi. I I just wanted to say that I am all for this 
watershed moment where people finally recognize this is a problem. However, I'm really afraid it's going too far, and they're not differentiating between different degrees, just like you can have first-degree felony assault or you can have a misdemeanor assault. And I'm afraid that they're diluting the impact of the most serious charges, the most serious situation, by throwing it all in together. Right. And I, like I like Matt what, Matt Lauer to me is yeah I, Matt Lauer to me is a very serious situation Harvey Weinstein Absolutely. obviously very serious but then you look at Al Franken I think although his behavior was not defensible is not on the same degree of like exposing himself or, or raping a person you know what I I understand exactly, exactly what you're meaning exactly. and then even a step even a step below that Garrison is Keeler Garrison you know, Keeler just, right NPR's response was so such an overreaction it just it feeds the idea that this is nothing but a witch hunt and a bunch of hysterical women from people who would want to put it down. And that's exactly and what I, we want to avoid. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. I mean, the, yeah. the people the people who should most want to guard against false accusations are the people who want to take this the most seriously because the one thing that will derail this is if we find out that a bunch of these are false or that a bunch of these are exaggerated. Thanks for the call, Kay. Appreciate it. We're going to go with Jay Todd. Where's Jay today, Natil? Speakeasy. Jay, is it Speakeasy's, a wonderful place. We're going to hear all about the wonderful lunch he's having there, and then we'll come back with more of the Rob Report here on 970 WDAY AM 93.1 FM. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob Report, 970 WDY AM, 93.1 FM, 701-293-9000, email talk at WDY.com. We, uh, the initiated measure process is, uh, well, I don't want to say it's going to be reformed. The legislature is looking at ways of potentially reforming it during their 2017 session um earlier this year they passed uh they passed a bill creating an interim committee which would study different ways of potentially reforming the initiated measure process i i think i've made it pretty clear i don't like i don't like ballot measures that doesn't necessarily mean i mean the process exists so that doesn't necessarily mean i won't support or oppose given measures um, if it's going to be an avenue for making public policy, then I'm, you know, obviously going to have things to say about the policy that's proposed. And there may still be some good policy proposed through the initiated measure process. I just think that on the whole, making, you know, addressing complicated policy questions at the ballot box is a really, just a really poor way of doing things. I, I don't, I don't like it. I'm not a fan of direct democracy in general. I like I like referendums. I like the idea of voters having a veto over what the legislature passes. I just don't think I don't think the process we have now for enacting policy at, at the ballot box is very good for a lot of excellent reasons. Um, so we're stuck with it, though. We have a sort of a sort of a over overweening fetish for direct democracy in this country. And so people like the idea of it, and I'm very much of the minority in my views on the initiated measure process, so so be it. That's where we're at. Uh, the interim committee is actually meeting, I believe, today, um, and, and they're going to be talking about different proposals for changing the initiated measure process. And I actually got I actually got hold uh, due to a due to a source that, that forwarded me the proposals that they're going to be talking about today. I, I got a hold of them. Uh, and I wanted to run some of them by you, the callers, and see what you think of these, right? Because obviously we spend a lot of time talking on the radio and, and fighting it out in the newspaper editorial pages over these ballot measures. Uh, these are some pretty significant changes to the process. I wanted to hear what, what you folks thought about them. 701-293-9000, email talk at wday.com. So here we go. And by the way, if you want to read the full email and everything, it's all up at sayanythingblog.com. Uh, I got them. This is actually an email from Legislative Council uh, to the committee members. So the first proposal uh, would stop any ballot measure with unfunded mandates, uh, meaning it does things that cost the state uh, money without providing revenue for them. 
uh, would stop those ballot measures from going into effect until after revenue uh, lawmakers get a chance to appropriate funds from it. Uh, this That idea actually comes from the state of Maine. They have that provision in their state constitution in the state of Maine. Um, I guess I, I like the idea of that. Uh, I think a lot of times a ballot measure, California, I think, has struggled with this issue where they pass ballot measures and then they go into effect. And now state leaders are, are left scrambling, trying to figure out how, how, how to pay for what the new law is is forcing the state to do. Um, you know, one example for this might be the, the medical marijuana measure. You know, obviously, however you might feel about the outcome of that, it obviously created a lot of requirements on the state for developing a, a, developing a system and, and regulating a system for growing, uh, distributing, and selling and using medical marijuana. That means we got to hire state employees. we got to figure out how we're going to enforce the laws, and all that stuff costs money. And lawmakers, because they, they ended up, re, you know, rejiggering the law during their session, you know, also figured out some ways to pay for it. But a lot of times that's not the case. So that's that's one proposal. Another one uh, would require that measures which make multiple changes to the state constitution uh, be approved by way of separate votes. Now, Montana has this provision. And actually, just this year, uh, that provision in Montana state constitution is why that state's iteration of Marzi's law, which also passed here in North Dakota last year, uh, well, that state's iteration of, of Marzi's law was actually struck down by their state Supreme Court. Um, and I like this, too. I, I think one big problem with initiated measures is that a lot of times they're very complicated. They make a lot of, you know, sort of sweeping changes to the law in a lot of different places. And I think it's very hard for voters to, to consider the full ramifications for that. Essentially, this requirement would mean that ballot measures have to be simpler. And I like that. I think it's going to be easier for voters to uh, to get a handle on that. Uh, another proposal would ha- require a code reviser review of proposed ballot language before it is approved for circulation. I honestly don't know why they're not doing this already, Natil. I, I have harped for a long time on the fact that the medical marijuana measure didn't contain language to decriminalize medical marijuana. I think it's pretty clear that we should be taking a closer look at that language before we put it on the ballot. Um, I'll continue with these after the break. Interesting stuff. What do you think? Do you have any ideas for reforming the initiated measure process? Love to hear from you. 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob Report, 970 WDAY, AM 93.1 FM, 701-293-9000, 888-970-9329, email talk at uh, Last segment we left off, we were talking about uh, proposed changes to North Dakota's initiated measure process. There is a legislative committee, uh, interim committee, they're meeting today, they're considering, they're considering different proposals, and then eventually the committee will come up with recommendations for the full legislature for reforming the initiated measure process. This is a hot-button topic. Our initiated measure process in North Dakota gets used a lot. Uh, it's always the subject every cycle of, of a lot of a lot of debate. So this this matters. This is a big deal. Now, before the break, I talked about three proposals. One uh, would would delay any ballot measure with unfunded mandates from going into effect until lawmakers get a chance to fund it. That idea comes from the state of Maine. They have it in place there. Uh, another one would require measures which make multiple changes to the state constitution to be approved by way of separate votes. Montana has that provision. As a matter of fact, it was used to strike down that state's iteration of Marzi's law. Um, I like it. I think it keeps ballot measures simpler. Another one would, would require that a code reviser review proposed ballot language before it's approved for circulation. I honestly, Natil, don't understand why we're not already doing that. It would certainly help uh, in cases like the medical marijuana yeah, ballot measure where we we definitely overlooked some things as voters. Yeah, I I mean agree or disagree with a given measure. I I think we want to make sure because again, I mean a lot of these are coming from citizens. I mean a lot of these ballot measures are just written by citizens, and you know there's the the, the law is a very complicated thing, and if you're just if you're striking things out and adding things in that could have implications for other aspects of the law, right? Because the different parts of the law reference each other. It's a complex thing, reviewing all of that. The legislative council, for, for lawmakers, legislative council has a group of people that just do that. They just look at every bill and the implications for the overall law and make sure that all the changes 
are good, and he, even they screw it up sometimes. I, I don't know if you remember. You remember the brunch law, Natil? Uh, where we're allowed to open, they're allowed like restaurants and some some they're allowed to start serving alcohol before noon on Sundays. Like they start serving it at like eleven. Oh yeah, yeah. When they they actually they actually screwed up. They actually screwed that up. Um, it wasn't clear whether or not the legislature actually changed the law appropriately because they changed it in one part of the law, but they forgot to change it in another part of the law, and it came out came out of the legislature. The law wasn't completely changed. Now. Uh, you know, I, I think what happened is, is is legislative intent sort of won over. I mean, they clearly intended well, what they intended to do ended up being how the law was enforced. But the legislature had to come back into session, had to uh, fix that when they were back in session. So it happens even to the lawmakers. So it can happen on ballot measures. I, I, I think a thorough review is exactly what we need. Um, now, here here's another uh, proposal that this committee for, for changes to the initiative measure process Another proposal that they're considering is requiring that committees sponsoring ballot measures include a way through which the measure would be paid for, which basically means if you're going to put a measure on on the ballot, you also have to include how you're going to pay for it. You know, are you going to take money out of the sales tax? Are you going to institute a new tax? You got to pay for it. So, for instance, I, I don't know until if you and I came up, but we wanted to put a ballot measure out there. Uh, that would require uh, every intersection in the state have have a stop sign or something. I I don't know. So I'm trying to come up with something good, but something like that. Some some measure that requires the state to do a thing. And obviously, anytime you require the state to do a thing, it has a cost. We would also have to come up with a way to pay for that. You know, whether it's instituting a new tax or using you know existing revenue streams, we would have to figure out what it's going to cost and how we're going to pay for it. What do you think of that? I think I can. I I think I can get behind that. Yeah. So, like for like or for instance, let's let's look at like the medical marijuana measure. Probably what they would have had to do is include in there some way to like maybe collect fees from people sell like licensing fees from the people who want to sell it or people who want to grow it, right? Some some fee structure maybe to to help pay for. The revenue, gen- you, you know what I mean, well, to, and, to and generate there, some revenue that there, in turn were, can pay for. Right. There were in that particular thing because they talked right. about um, how much the fee would be to get your your registration card and how much right. the fee would be to, um, yeah, to handle the licensing of the facilities that would be the dispensaries. So, like in that ballot measure, we sort of had that going going yeah. there. In the Marcy's Law one, however, there wasn't any real right. way to talk about the additional cost that was going to be placed on the counties to handle all of this additional work. Right. Like, and, and the questions about open records and everything else, um, notifying people. I mean, there's, there's a lot to that. Um, I, I, th- I think the, qu- the hard part would be is, is trying to figure out how the state would go about implementing it, right? Because you kind of have to guess at it. Like, well, how are they going to implement? How, how is the citizen supposed to know how much that's going to cost? There's a lot of different ways to do it. Are they going to, like, hire a new employee? to do it are they going to create like a new commission are they going i I, you know it it would be complicated it would be hard to do but i'm not necessarily against it because i think that's one thing that gets overlooked is you pass a ballot measure there's a cost to these things and you know i i I don't know that we spend enough time talking about the potential cost Uh, here's another one it would require approval by the legislature and governor governor for any constitutional amendment approved by voters which spends above a certain amount of money um, and I, I think the example that they gave, and that this would be just an example, this wouldn't be written in stone, but if, if, it, if it provides for spending of public funds in a sum that's greater to, say, 1% of general fund revenue for the previous biennium, right? So, so you put in place some sort of formula or some sort of threshold, and you say, well, a ballot measure that spends over this amount of money, you have to go through the additional step. Once the voters approve it, it also has to be approved by the legislature and signed into law by the governor. What would you think of that? I also don't see a problem with that. Yeah, because I I, I don't think so. I, I know a lot of people are thinking, well, the legislatures would just legislators would just scuttle it. The legislators are pretty sensitive. If the voters approve something like that, legislators are going to be pretty hesitant to do anything to mess around with it. Now I know there's been all sorts of accusations flying about the medical marijuana measure, but I think if you look at what came out of the legislature, I think you actually got better policy. They didn't scuttle it. They didn't make it difficult. I I know people disagree with me on that, but. Generally, um, 
And I, I don't know that this would necessarily allow them to amend it, though. I think they would just have to ratify it, basically. And I, I think it would be pretty precarious for any lawmaker to vote against something that the people clearly voted for. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, would, that would be political suicide. Right. But it does give them an additional step for an additional scrutiny to say, hey, wait a minute. There are some ramifications here that weren't discussed during the campaign that we maybe need to take a look at. I, I think it's an additional step. I like rigor. When it comes to public policy, I don't think it should be made quickly. I, I generally like when it comes to making policy that the government moves slowly. It should. The law is a thing that can a lot of times have, have unintended consequences that could be very harmful. So it should move slow. Yeah, well, and I don't, I don't mind government moving slowly on public policy as long as there is motion. Because in, in, the, yeah. in the case with like medical marijuana, for example, citizens had brought this up several times. And nothing ever really got moving. It wasn't that the process was moving slowly. It wasn't yeah. moving at all. And then See, finally the ballot measure happened and then everybody across the state overwhelmingly decided that, yes, this is something that we want to happen. And then the process started moving really, really fast sort of to try to catch up. See, that, that's why I like the idea of making, instead of having initiated measures at the ballot box, making everything a referendum, right? So, so right now the referendums are... If, if the legislature passes a law you don't like, you can refer it, you can get signatures, refer it to the ballot, and then the, the voters have an opportunity to veto it, basically. So I like that idea. But what if, what if we made it so that if you introduce a bill in the legislature and it fails, you can refer that bill to the people and have a vote on it? So, for instance, you're talking about the medical marijuana. That was, that was introduced repeatedly in the legislature, and it failed. And I think it failed because... I think it's a tricky thing because I don't know that a lot of lawmakers, I certainly didn't have, before that vote happened, I didn't have the feeling that North Dakota voters cared all that much about medical marijuana. Clearly I was wrong. And I still don't think they cared about enough where they were making, they were voting based on that issue. I don't think it was a voting issue. I think when it was put in front of them, they approved it. But what would you think about the idea of you have a proposal before the legislature and then you can refer, if it fails in the legislature, you can refer that bill to the ballot and give the people a chance to say yay or nay. I like that idea, as opposed to initiating brand new law at the ballot box. Anyway, we'll discuss this more. Jay Thomas on location at Speakeasies. We'll get an update from him. 701-293-9000, Email talk at WDAY.com. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rockport 970 WDY AM 93.1 FM. We're going to talk tax reform now. Uh, the Senate, I think on the verge of, of probably passing, it's looking very good. That's certainly what Congressman Kevin Kramer told us yesterday when he talked about it. Now, obviously, he's not in the Senate chamber. But, you know, when we had until we had Senator Hoven on last week and he sounded very confident. I asked him, you know, is the Senate going to get this done? And he said, it was like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to get it. We got the votes. We're going to get it done. Very, very confident. So um, I guess we're, we're going to see what's going to happen. But I would say the Senate probably on the cusp of tax, you know, passing tax reform. And, then of course, it has to be uh, reconciled with, with what the House has passed and sent to, to President Trump for signature. But here to talk with us about it all, Pete Sepp. He is the president of the National Taxpayers Union. Uh, Pete, thanks for the time today. Always a pleasure. Tell us, I, I know you're, you're, you're following, tracking all this stuff in all, all the, the various uh, maneuvering and the minutia of what's going on. Where are we at right now with this in the Senate? Well, of course, the Senate committees of relevance, the Finance Committee and the Budget Committee, have cleared the proposal for floor action. Last night, Congress voted 52 to 48 in the upper chamber to start the debate over the tax reform bill. That sets into motion 20 hours of debate and scads of amendments. We have lots of them to get through and vote on, some good, many bad. But uh, I do feel confident that the Senate will get through 
system. We have to put in a lot of hard work making sure that senators understand the benefits of the current bill, how they can improve it, how they can avoid making it worse. But the process, the legislating, is going pretty well. What, what do we need to look at? I mean, obviously, as it's, it's this moves to the floor, and, and there's always there's always going to be all sorts of amendments, offered usually with various levels of, of seriousness. You know, I think a lot of it tends to be just sort of grandstanding or, or forcing people to go on the record on issues. Are there any amendments in that process we should be keeping an eye on that, that could potentially pass? Well, I think one interesting amendment uh, would repeal for many Americans who live abroad a troublesome tax law called FATCA, the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act, which basically requires Americans who have bank accounts abroad to go through all kinds of administrative maneuvers uh, just to have assets abroad. Uh, They're treated like criminals. That's several million Americans. Uh, Rand Paul is introducing an amendment to uh, repeal that law, that would be one of the good ones. Then again, there are some bad ones as well. There is a well-meaning amendment from Senators Lee and Rubio to expand the refundable portion of the child tax credit. It's called the Advance Child Tax Credit, but it would do so by taking the 20% corporate tax rate that's called for in the bill and making it 22% instead. Well, what you're doing there is essentially is depriving the very families you want to help of the job opportunities and income growth that cutting taxes and keeping rates low for individuals and businesses would provide. So that's counterproductive. Do you feel like a, a lot of this, I, it's, some of this stuff just seems like we're, we're moving stuff around. I, I think a lot of Americans, politically, I think Republicans need, they need a win. You know, I, after after the Obamacare re- repeal stuff flamed out, they need a legislative win. Uh, I, I I realize I, I don't want to trivialize any any particular policy you know proposal, but is, is there a point at which they could be letting the perfect be the enemy of the good? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we have to remember here what the House and Senate bills have in common. Both of them would provide serious middle-class tax relief for a median-income family with two children. We're talking about over $2,000 of annual tax relief that the Senate bill would provide. Both would get rid of the alternative minimum tax. Both would provide some relief or even repeal the death tax. Both would provide relief for small businesses, albeit in different ways. Both would reduce the corporate tax rate from its sky-high 35% to 20%, a move that economists widely acknowledge would make us more competitive with other countries. So they have more in common than they have in differences, and the fundamentals are right with these bills. Senators need to take a step back and remember that, as well as bear in mind that better economic growth can help contribute to solving a lot of problems we're going to run into in the future, like the entitlement crisis. Where are we at? We had Congressman Kramer on yesterday, and one thing he said, obviously he's in the House chamber, and he's just, he's right now, the ball's in the Senate's court, and he's observing, but he said one thing that had caught his eye was the talk of, of, of a, a sort of guardrail for impact on the debt and deficit. And I think that's one thing a lot of people are concerned about. I, I certainly don't want to pass tax reform that's going to add to our debt and deficit problem. I, I don't think that's fiscally responsible. The way Congressman Kramer described these proposals is essentially it would be some sort of a trigger where if revenues don't hit certain goals, then you know some sort of an, uh, a tax increase would, would kick in uh, to help get revenue up to those goals so that we're sort of protecting the debt and deficit. As much as I want to protect those things, that sounds like a really bad idea. That sounds like embedding a hell of a lot of uncertainty into our tax code at a time when we're trying to make it simpler and more predictable. But but tell us more about this and, and where we're at with those proposals. Yes, we do not have 
and nobody has outside of a few members of Congress, the actual legislative language of how this thing would work. But it's rumored to be that at a given point in time, there'd be an assessment each year as to whether economic growth was sufficiently on track with predictions. And if it isn't, well, then tax rates would somehow be increased or scheduled tax reductions simply would not occur. Well, the problem with that is it's a self-fulfilling circular prophecy. If you don't realize the economic growth that you want and you defer further tax relief, what are you going to get? Well, less economic growth. And it's just going to continue spiraling downward and downward to the point where the entire tax cut package falls apart. If members of Congress are really concerned about the deficit here, there are other ways to address it. You could, for example, have a spending reduction trigger where Congress would be confronted with taking a vote on keeping the deficit below a certain level. Uh, That would be a way of confronting folks who claim to be concerned about the deficit but might actually just not want to provide additional tax relief to Americans. Uh, That would expose their hidden agenda. Do you feel like there's a situation – it seems to me the whole concept of triggers in general just creates uncertainty. I mean, now it, it puts us in, in a position of, of sort of watching something that we don't necessarily have a lot of control over, right? I mean, there's a lot of economic factors. Sometimes economic factors are like the weather. We can't really control if it rains or not. We can't control if, if our egg industry is going to get hit with droughts or if we're going to have a natural disaster or, or maybe, I, heaven forbid, we have – uh, a, a terrorist attack that impacts our economy. We can't predict things like that. Do we really want to put in place anything that, that's going to – I mean, that just seems like a really, really bad idea. And by the way, we've done this here in North Dakota. We've had t- uh, triggers in our tax code here in North Dakota tied to things like oil prices. They were a terrible idea. We just got rid of them. This just sounds like a bad idea, idea overall. Yeah, it certainly does. And you're right. I mean, at some point in time, Congress has to be able to confront decision-making in real-time fashion. I mean, if there is a natural disaster or if there is some economic crisis, if there is a national security crisis, well, then members of Congress can debate whether to change policy at that point in time. It doesn't mean that you have to build in all of these what-ifs that might end up actually taking policy in a contradictory direction. I mean, North Carolina was able to reduce its taxes using really a positive trigger system, whereby the tax cuts were scheduled to take place and would take place uh, unless the legislature specifically acted in some kind of emergency sense to suspend them. You know, maybe that's the way to bridge the gap here and say, look, we're going to assume that all of this is going to happen. And there's not going to be some hurdle each year that these tax cuts have to overcome to become law. One last question. There was a letter to the editor of the Fargo Forum, and it was talking about provisions in uh, the the tax reform bills that would sort of end some of the prohibitions on tax-exempt organizations, like 501c3s, churches, charities, stuff like that. Uh, Currently, in order to keep their their tax-exempt status – have to refrain from engaging in in electoral politics. Um, Does the tax reform strike that down? What's what's the status on that? I, I think a lot of people are wondering about that. Well, it's unknown whether that is going to survive the Senate's package. Uh, That was originally an idea in the House of Representatives, and whether that's actually going to make it through in the final vote on the Senate package, that's in doubt. And, of course, there are many folks who support that, many folks who are worried about it. Uh, The whole notion that uh, tax-exempt organizations uh, have to jump through a lot of hoops to engage in certain political activities, well, that's going to remain controversial, really, uh, whether or not this package passes. I have to say, there are going to be additional tax laws passing after this big one. Uh, We often think of this being the most uh, historic opportunity to change our tax system in 30 years. That's true, but that doesn't mean it'll be the end of it. Uh, Even after 1986, there were so-called technical correction packages 
and IRS reform packages that followed two, three years after that that were quite significant, quite important. So these discussions will continue. Pete, I appreciate your time. My pleasure. That's Pete Sepp from the National Taxpayers Union. Senate going to be acting today. It's, it's going to be interesting. A floor debate. A lot of stuff can happen very, very quickly, and we're going to keep an eye on that. More to come straight ahead here on the Rob Report. 701-293-9000, Email talk at WDAY.com. Don't go away. Rob Port, 701-293-9000, email talk at WDAY.com. 701, uh, what am I doing here? I don't know what I'm doing. The two of them lost. Here it is. Try, try again. Right. Try again. All right. All right here we go. Uh, okay, so we just got done talking with Pete Sepp. He is the president of the National uh, Taxpayers Union. Talking about tax reform, obviously. Now, it has gone to floor debate in the United States Senate. Uh, and that means, you know, they're allowed to offer amendments on the floor. There's all sorts of, you know, there's going to be speeches and all sorts of grandstanding and maneuvering and all that. That's part of the process. But in order to get to the floor, um, it's got to pass a, a procedural vote. And essentially, it's it's a motion to proceed. And it's it's the point at which there can be a filibuster. There, there's basically two moments at which you can filibuster a, a bill in the United States Senate. And I think most of the time when people think of a filibuster, you think of standing up and talking forever to keep a bill from, from going to a final vote. Uh, they don't really do that anymore because instead they've just moved it up to where you have to have a supermajority to, to proceed, 60 votes. But there's actually two on every bill, there's two votes on on proceeding at a minimum um one is you commence debate and then the second one is to end debate and then go to a final vote so those are two opportunities at which you could filibuster now what's very very interesting to me is that yesterday's vote on the motion to proceed on hr1 uh, which is the tax cuts of jobs act uh, was voted on last night passed 52 to 48 north dakota senator uh, John Hoven voting yes to proceed. North Dakota Senator Heidi Heitkamp voting against it. Now, I, I think that's very, very interesting because Senator Heitkamp portrays herself as this sort of bipartisan, middle of the road, um, you know, red state Democrat, which which she really has to. I mean, that's the political tightrope she has to walk in a state where she's the only Democrat to win on the statewide ballot since 2008. That's who she's got to be. She can't be some fire-breathing liberal. Maybe as much as she might want to be, she can't be some fire-breathing liberal on this issue. So she votes no on proceeding. Now, that's interesting because if you remember back to her 2012 campaign, she actually campaigned against that sort of filibustering. She campaigned against that sort of, you know, partisan, you know, lining up and and stopping progress from happening. I mean, this, this is not, remember, this is not a, a position where um, you are going to vote, you know, where, where if, if she voted, um, if, if, if she voted against proceeding, it would go to a final vote. It wasn't even that. Senator Heitkamp voted against even proceeding to the debate. Senator Heitkamp voted against even debating the tax bill on the floor of the Senate. Now, if, if she if she ends up finding things in the bill she doesn't like, there are two more opportunities for her to vote against it. She could vote against ending debate. That's a filibuster. Or she could vote against the bill in its final form after that. But instead, she voted against even debating the bill. And I, I wonder how... And by the way, it was a partisan vote. Um... All every all every person who voted against proceeding was a Democrat. Every 
Every senator who voted in favor of proceeding, and by the way, all 100 senators voted, every senator who voted in favor of proceeding was a Republican. It was a 100% party-line vote. And Senator Heitkamp, when the chips were down, voted with her party. And it, it flies in the face of everything she says about how she's not a partisan. She can't, Remember those 2012 campaign ads? It was one ad after another in which Heitkamp deployed the term independent. She's an independent person. She'll, she'll, it, she'll be independent. You know, she'll fight for North Dakota. She'll put her state first. She'll put her, you know, her constituents above partisan considerations. Well, this is one of the most consequential pieces of legislation that's going to be considered by this Congress. Probably the most consequential legislation. This bill is huge. The implications for our economy, the implications for our businesses, the implications for us as individuals are enormous. And Senator Heitkamp, when the chips were down, voted with her party. And, and, and not even in a way, and, and again, it wouldn't. It would be a different thing if, if she had some explanation. She said there, there are things about this bill I don't like, and I, I'm not even sure she's been clear about that. I, I think she said that a lot of it's vague. She hasn't seen the language, et cetera, et cetera, and that's fine. But she's voting against even proceeding to debate on a partisan line vote. And I don't understand how somebody like Senator Heitkamp reconciles that with what she portrays of herself on the campaign trail. Now, starting next year, we're going to start to see Senator Heitkamp. I mean, the, the, the 2018 Senate race in North Dakota has already started. Let's not kid ourselves. But Senator Heitkamp is going to be, um, you know, starting next year, is actually going to be out on the campaign trail. And when she's out there, she's going to be touting herself as this independent, middle of the road. She's going to be distancing herself from Democrats nationally. Because that's what she's got to do to win in North Dakota. She can't associate herself with Chuck Schumer and Bernie Sanders and a lot of Elizabeth Warren and a lot of these other Democrats that we know. She can't associate herself with them. So she's going to be out there. She's going to be saying this. I'm an independent. I'm bipartisan. I work with both sides. And I want you to remember this vote. When it came down to a vote to even debate the tax bill on the floor of the Senate, Senator Heitkamp joined with every other Democrat in the United States Senate in a partisan vote to block debating, filibustering it. I think it's hypocritical. More to come straight ahead. We're going to do the rundown next. This is the Rob Report on 970 WDY AM 93.1 FM. No, go away. The Rob Report. The Rob Report. On 970 WDAY. The Rundown. All right, Natil, what's going on out there? Oh, lots of stuff. We're going to start off with a Roy Moore story. I know how much you love Roy Moore. Uh. Roy Moore just blamed his sexual misconduct allegations on lesbians, gays, and socialists. <sighs> All right. What's, do we have the quote? What, what he actually said? Uh, speaking from a church pulpit in Alabama, the Republican Senate candidate said the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender socialists are behind the malicious allegations against him. He called it a conspiracy against him, cooked up by Democrats pushing a liberal agenda who have tried unsuccessfully to ruin his campaign. No, I, I mean, the, the problem is, is that a lot of the women who came out, I mean, have absolutely no connection to his opponents. They have no connection to groups who are opposed to him. I mean, to me, that's a big part of why the accusations against him are so credible. I mean, the funny thing, though, is that, I mean, okay, so so Roy Moore is sort of, this is what politicians do, right, when, when they want to sort of rally the troops, right, circle the wagons, is they attack the other, right? So, and, and depending on what sort of a politician you are, it, it's sort of depending on who the other is. Now, for Roy Moore, it's, you know, commies and, and homos and, and all the other, you know, people he referred to there. Uh, on the other side, though, you have James Clyburn, who is writing to the defense of, um, and now I, I have no idea why I'm completely, uh, the, uh, John Conyers. Um, Jim Clyburn, who is a member of the Congressional Black Caucus, um, you know, essentially saying, well, look, all of all of uh, Conyers' accusers are are white, right? So it's like you want to circle the wagons around your guy, 
or, or around yourself or, or whatever the case may be. So you go out and you attack the other, right? You attack somebody and, and you try to create a distraction saying that the motivation is something other than the truth. Now, the problem with Conyers is a lot of the accusations were people who worked for him, like people who worked in his staff. I, I mean, you don't go to work for a Democratic member of Congress unless your politics probably generally align. I mean, these are probably not like Republican operatives who are working for Democrats in Congress, like embedded themselves undercover uh, on his staff and are now turning around and saying these things about him. It's patently absurd, but, you know, that's the game that they play. You know, muddy the waters, distract, 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 and try to hold on. I don't know this this whole thing with Roy Moore, especially this specific incident, really yeah. sort of just upsets me because he's not only was he speaking out against you know the LGBTQ community who is already in a lot of ways sort because of, it doesn't seem to have anything to do with it. Well, exactly. By the way. They, well, they they don't they don't have anything to do with it, and he brought them into this because he hates them, and he did it from a right. church pulpit. Okay? And a lot of his and, and a lot of his a lot of his base hates them too. Which, I mean, is, let's, which is wrong and stupid. and you, right. why, they're, they're not doing anything to you. They're just trying to live their lives. I that was under- the thing. I mean, before Roy Moore was ever, I, I, I think you remember, I asked, you know, I was calling on Roy Moore to, to drop out of the Senate and, and saying there was no place for him in the Republican Party before any of this stuff even broke about him. I mean, to me, his possession, his, his hatred of homosexuals, um, was was enough for me. And, and I'm not saying, I mean, listen, I, I disagree with people who think that homosexuality is a sin. I understand, you know, if you have religious convictions in that direction, if you're Christian or you're Muslim or, or whatever it is, I think that's a different thing than hatred. I, I, I think you can be disapproving of a lifestyle without necessarily hating, right? I don't agree with it. Uh, you know, that, that's not my point of view on it. But what Roy Moore has is hatred. I mean, what, what he believes in is hatred. I mean, when you're talking about, well, I'm going to put people in jail for that, um, you know, I, I'm not so sure we shouldn't be executing him. I mean, that those are his positions. Those are things he said, and they're disgusting. And to me, that was enough. And then the stuff comes out about, you know, allegations of him having sex with a 14-year-old. Well, you know, I was already there. So he's a repugnant human being. And I, I, I don't care. Yeah, okay, he'll probably vote the right way on tax reform for conservatives. He'll probably vote the right way on a lot of other issues for conservatives. But I don't care. I don't want to associate myself with somebody like him for the sake of, of moving the political ball of the field. There are other people who aren't repugnant human beings like Roy Moore who would vote the same way. So, I don't know. That's where I'm at on Roy Moore. Yeah, it's it's pretty ridiculous. All right, let's let's move on here. Uh, This story is pretty crazy. Video shows former military leader apparently drinking poison in court before his death. Okay, this was he was um, this was that like the Hague, I think. And he was on trial for war crimes, right? Yeah, it was it was a pretty big deal. Yeah, so he's on trial for war crimes and he's like giving a speech just right there and then like drinks poison, right? Like right in front of him. Like you guys will never get me. See you later. And like like denying it the whole time, too. Like not admitting anything, just denying it. Like you guys are just out to get me, drinks the poison, and he's done. That's crazy. I mean, that's that's absolutely insane. Uh, one thing that you don't necessarily see a lot of um, is, is that sort of thing. And it's it's really hard because... There was another case. I just watched a documentary about this. It was like a state auditor, I think, from Pennsylvania who killed himself live on television. Like he was doing – he was caught up in some corruption issue uh, and then was standing up at a podium in a room full of, like, reporters and colleagues and staff. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then just pulled out a gun and shot himself right on camera. Um, Horrible, horrible thing, you know. At least this and, guy didn't shoot himself. He just swallowed right, some poison. poison. Still, he died. He did. He did indeed die. Now, what what conflict was he supposedly guilty of committing war crimes in? Oh, uh, a 20-year sentence for murdering Muslims, apparently. Was that during, like, the like the Serbian-Croatian? Um, yeah, during, like, the, the Bosnian-Croatian. Okay, gotcha. The whole kerfuffle. Horrible, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I... And, and what what he did was horrible, and he, you know, yeah. he kept saying that he wasn't a, a war criminal, and 
he must have bribed the right people, but he had this little shot glass and he swallowed what was in the shot glass and then uh, said to the judge, I just drank poison. Wow. All right, what's next? Well, this one's kind of crazy. Scarborough, Trump allies told me he has dementia. Yeah, so... Dear MSNBC, just stop talking. You know, the the thing, thing, well... I mean, I mean, I, does Trump have dementia? I, no, I mean, I don't think so. He he's been erratic like this for years, so I don't think this is anything. No, I think that's just new. who he is. It's just who he is. Um, you know, it's, it's Scarborough is because uh, Trump tweeted recently about you know this this one of a, a staffer who worked for Scarborough years ago when Scarborough was in Congress. He was a Republican member of Congress from Florida. Um, a staffer died in one of his offices. And I, I don't want to say it was suspicious. I mean, basically, I think the autopsy found some sort of a heart condition caused her, caused her to pass out. Uh, and then I think the finding was that she fell and she hit her head. Two months after that, Scarborough ended up, you know, sort of abruptly resigning from Congress. Um, now, you know, conspiracy mongers out there have, have connected the two. I don't think it's fair to connect the two. But Trump, you know, sort of digging it back up, saying that that's something that people should look into Obviously, Scarborough taking that pretty seriously and now firing back on his own. The problem I have with Scarborough doing this, though, is that it's really lowering him to Trump's level, right? Yeah, and, and, and it I think, seems I think to give when, some amount of credence to what Trump is saying, in a way, because I think I think when media people do that, Trump wins. Yeah, he just he just shouldn't have responded. Yeah. He, he shouldn't he shouldn't have responded at or, all. Or do at least don't that respond is. that way. Don't respond that way by, like, launching your own sort of unsubstantiated, wild accusations. Um, You're just lowering yourself to Trump's level. And Trump wins that fight every single time. I mean, all, you know, the Keith Olbermans of the world, you know, the the left-wing commentators, the the reporter, like CNN's Jim Acosta, they lose credibility. When they are unfair to Trump, they lose credibility, right? So if if they, they cross a line to the point where, I mean, part of the reason why, we are entering an age in American politics where people are just stop. We're just going to stop believing things we don't want to be true, right? So if, if you're a Roy Moore fan, you're just not going to believe credible accusations against Roy Moore. It doesn't matter how you know solid the reporting is, you're just not going to believe it uh, because you don't want it to be true. And and your excuse, you can point to all these examples where reporters do, you know, media people do gen- genuinely misbehave and communicate biases. That are unfortunate, you know, and and that is the risk in, you know, not being transparent about those things or being unfair about those things is that you lose, you know, credibility. Joe Scarborough launches this, this, Joe Scarborough has made himself less effective as a critic of Donald Trump by doing this. And I don't think that serves Joe Scarborough's purposes at all. It's a dumb thing to do. Caller, Ken, you're up. Yeah, there's the old saying that you don't wrestle with a pig because you get dirty yeah. You look ridiculous doing it, and the pig loves it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the problem is we live in Kardashian Nation where I don't know what the alternative is. It used to be ignore yeah. it, but if yeah. you ignore it, then, you know, Trump is a master of doubling down and finding your seam. Uh, and, you know, all you got to do is Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio. You know, look at the debates where he, he tags somebody, yeah. and then you have to say, do I fight back against this ridiculousness or it, it will stick because we love it. We, we love the Kardashian brawl, knuckle brawl. I think, I think that is, I, I think that is sort of the problem with American politics right now is that it's really what the people want. I, I think everybody yeah. likes to blame the media yeah. and everybody <laughs> likes to blame the politicians but what I mean, what, what what the screaming, talking heads on Fox News and, and MSNBC and all the rest of them are are catering to what the politicians with their antics and their grandstanding and their, uh, you know, everything that they do, they're doing it for effect. And it's all calculated and they're doing it because it works and it works yeah, yeah. because the voters want it. Yeah, Trump won because fainting couch about, oh, my. But guess what? It drives ratings. And then everybody's waiting. Well, well, well. Now, what's Trump gonna gonna say about Scarborough? And then what's Scarborough gonna? Everybody laps it up, 
all the while saying, you know, tisk tisking, why can't we get back to uh, the Marquis de Queensbury rules? Never going would- to happen. I would interject that this is why direct democracy is a terrible thing. This is why our founding fathers didn't want direct democracy, because this is rule by the mob. And you know what? A lot of times the mob are a bunch of idiots that are, are, are easily fooled, are easily swayed, are easily, you know, sort of bamboozled. Whipped into a fever pitch. And, and that's why right. people say gridlock in Washington. Good. Because these guys got lots of bad ideas. And I don't want all these guys getting on and rushing through bad ideas yeah i agree ken thanks for the call appreciate it uh until let's wrap it up you're listening to am 970 93.1 fm this is the rob report and that's the rundown Welcome back, Rob Report, wrapping things up. Jay Thomas Show coming up next, 701-293-9000, email talk at wday.com if you want to get on the last part of the show. Uh, I, I am so glad Ken called in because I think he puts his finger on, and I, I talk about this a lot, the dirty secret about the way things are what they are is that we want them that way. Right? So I, people complain all the time about politicians, and they complain all the time about the media. They, they blame all of these institutions for for things that are wrong in the world. Forgetting that those institutions cater to us. They're giving us what we want. We send them signals with our votes, with the way we spend our money, with the way we choose to spend our time watching this channel over that channel or what have you. We send them signals that tell them what we want. And they respond by giving us more of what we want. And what we want from our news media are people screaming at each other, right? Just sort of that staged combat on cable television. You complain about it. You say, oh, it's terrible. Isn't it awful? They're all doing this. But we're all watching. We're all tuning in because it's entertaining or whatever our criteria are. And, you know, and the politicians, why, why do the politicians get away? With it? All the political class is terrible. You know that every two years... We could replace every single member of the House of Representatives every two years. Every two years, every single member of the House of Representatives is up for re-election. We could, if we wanted to, as an, as an electorate, replace every single one of them. Every two years, a third of the Senate's up. Every four-year cycle, we could turn over the entire House of Representatives twice and two-thirds of the Senate. And elect a new president if we wanted to. Now, do we do it? No. Most of the time, we vote for the same idiots we always vote for. Now, I say that. There are a lot of people in Congress that I want to say in Congress or people here in North Dakota that I want to say in Congress. Because I think they're doing a good job. But on the whole, I mean, we, we talk about these things. What do we actually do to change it? And how much of what the politicians do are just either things that, A, we're willing to accept and make peace with for the sake because they're voting the right way for us, or they're just giving us what we want. I mean, politicians come out there and they, you know, they, they deploy these tactics and they call each other nasty names and it's all this mudslinging and everything else and they make these wild accusations that are unsubstantiated and they make unfair claims about their opponents and their opponents' policies and proposals. And they do that because it works. That's the dirty little secret. They're not really the problem. You're the problem. You're the one who's getting fooled by it. And you know what, Atil, the funny thing is, nobody wants to hear that. It's the truth. I don't know. Do you think it's the truth, or am I, or am I just completely off? No, I don't think you're off, um, especially when it comes to the the media representation here. If people stopped consuming the types of media that are getting all of the play right now, we'd we wouldn't have that media in existence. So if, you know, if the coverage of Trump bothers you or if the way that Trump talks about people bothers you, if you stop paying attention to those things and you put attention in the places that you say you want to, then that's the type of media and that's the type of messaging that's going to come out on top. But it doesn't because we as people are grossly invested 
in yeah. these types of scandal stories. Well, because I mean, mostly because our priorities stink, too. Oh, absolutely. Our priorities stink. We want to be titillated more, more than we really want to pass. Talking about tax policy is really boring, right? Even though it affects us in a lot of ways and it's hugely important, it's really boring. It's confusing. It's complex. It's boring. It's a lot sexier if you, you know, sort of put it in there. Well, it's gonna, it's gonna push college students into poverty and everything else. The last becomes a lot sexier, a lot funner to talk about, right? Or we don't pay attention about anything until some politicians involved in a sex scandal, right? I, I think part of the reason Trump won is he's so entertaining. That's Trump's big thing is he's entertaining all the time. Everything he's doing is a venue. I mean, you see him, he's walking from, you know, the, the, the helicopter into the White House. Well, that's an opportunity for him to mug for the press, to do something that'll create some headlines. He gets it. Now, I'm not saying it's a good thing, but he gets it. You know, Donald Trump didn't even really have a, an, an articulate platform. Right. I mean, he had sort of a sort of a generically Republican platform. He didn't have a lot of very detailed specifics. He just tapped in to what the people wanted to hear, gave them what they wanted. Now he's the president of the United States. That's the dirty secret. We're ruled by the mob and we're the mob. And it's not always such a good thing. Jay Thomas show coming up next. Thanks for listening. Uh, I'll be back tomorrow. Uh, Try to get Senator Hoven on the show tomorrow. We'll see if that happens with tax reform uh, in the offing in the United States Senate. You can always catch me here 12 to 2 p.m. Monday through Friday on WDAY AM 93.1 FM. 24 hours a day, seven days a week at sayanythingblog.com, North Dakota's most popular political blog. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again.